It's Thursday, October 23rd, and Combing the Stacks has survived the Ides of October as we bring you episode 17. If it's your first listen, thanks for joining us as we cover six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each week we dig into the top 100 albums of the 1960s as identified by our friends at the website besteveralbums.com. Your hosts for tonight's episode are three bad hombres, John, Josh, and Matt, who are still searching for their ideas for their 2020 Halloween costumes. This week we'll be covering albums number 56, 53, and 51 as we move to within spitting distance of the top half of the countdown. We start things off in segment one with a trip to 1969 and the debut album of the trio Crosby, Stills, and Nash. We've spent a lot of time talking about David Crosby, but this week we find out more about his running buddies before they're joined by Neil Young for future releases. Josh will handle the bio and run the segment. Our second segment has us covering the Rolling Stones for the very first time, a development that will be much welcomed by the increasingly loud requests of the CTS faithful. John will discuss the origins of the Stones, as well as their first album of all original material, 1966's Aftermath. And no one will be happier than Matt this week as he gets to cover another Beatles album, our third in total, as he takes us through yet another early Beatles disc, this time 1963's Please Please Me. This represents the earliest Beatles albums that we've covered, and Matt is sure to bring his A-game. Carve those jack-o'-lanterns, smash those candy corns, and stay away from Camp Crystal Lake, because Combing the Stacks wants you safe and sound for this week's show. Second in the month of October, and you are listening to the 17th episode of Combing the Stacks, a music podcast covering six decades of music, three albums at a time. I'm John, and I'm going to be joined by my partners in crime, Josh and Matt. Matt, how are you today? I'm okay. I'm a little under the weather this week, so I am, uh, but I'm feeling better, and I'm bucking up for our for our big podcast today. So um, I hope to I hope to deliver today, fellas. He's got Matt. that husky voice. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. Matt will tell you exactly where he feels. He's like the Simon and Garfunkel of like intros right there. He will tell you exactly what's on his mind and his feelings. So, yeah. Well, our so deserve, put it on our, our listeners. Scale. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I, our listeners deserve nothing less. They did. Exactly. They, they need to know exactly how Matt's feeling at all times. Mm-hmm. And speaking of how people are feeling at all times, Josh, how are you feeling today? It's the halfway point, fellas. We're halfway mm. through the 60s this episode. Oh, wow. wow. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? When it we is. started this when we started this journey, I believe Matt's quote was, I hope we last more than a couple episodes or something along those lines. So <laughs> mm-hmm. if you want to kick back to episode one, Matt kicked us off with a with a bang within 30 seconds of saying, I don't know how long this is going to last, but I hope it works out pretty well. Well, Matt, answer, at least 17 episodes. So. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. And we have and we have a YouTube account and a Twitter account and multiple platforms, 10 of them. I mean, and we're just going to keep going from there. You know, pretty soon we'll be taking over the world. I, I am not to be consulted for um, any lottery number picks or any, you know, prophetic uh, statements. So uh, I'm not very good at that. You know, we, we, we have the idea, guys, and the nuts and bolts. And Matt, as we've said before, you bring the sex appeal to the, the podcast. So, you know, you're the you're the um, you're like in, in the ska groups, right? They have the skanker on the stage who just dances to the side and takes attention. That's, that's you for our I, podcast. I am know? working on my sex mansion. I'm, it's, it's, it's in, it's, the blueprints are in progress as we speak. So what, One day when we have combing the stack shirts, I think that sex mansions is going to be one of the initial three or four installments. Along Where the are those, stuff. by the way? Oh, well, you know, we're working on stuff. Like I said, you know, I'm, I'm too busy, Matt, establishing YouTube accounts, having a social media presence, editing I, the thing with Josh. I know that, you know, it's it's a heavy lift for you just to be here. But you I know, appreciate that. But I hear, I hear T-shirts in like episode two. So I'm going to nominate Matt for merchandising of the Coming the Stacks podcast. That is going to be his role. I do like T-shirts. We should. Like use that. You remember the logo from Home Alone with the house? We should just use that logo. (laughs) Except hopefully it has more luck than us on YouTube where like I've attempted to put up four videos and two of them have been blocked. Now they both are Bob Dylan videos. So apparently Bob Dylan does not like commentary about his 1960s albums with 30 second clips that are not monetized. But God bless you, Bob Dylan. As I put on the, the Twitter account today, uh, we are definitely blowing in the wind in terms of trying to put up his videos on YouTube. So, uh, But there will be other ones. The bonus episodes that Matt and I did while Josh was gone are going to be what I'm going to prioritize because I think there's some gems in there, as you found out last week. So please stop by the Combing the Stacks YouTube account and also uh, follow us uh, on Twitter at Combing the. All right, enough about pitches. We actually do not have any cleaning of the stacks this week as well. So we are just going to go plow straight ahead into these albums and boy do we have some albums today we have a in the first segment the debut album from crosby stills and nash crosby we've talked about plenty stills has come up from time to time and nash is blank canvas and josh will be covering that second will be the beatles who are certainly not blank canvas for this up uh, for this podcast uh and as you would imagine for those listeners of the show uh, Matt is going to capably handle that segment. And for those folks that have given me the business and the Combing the Stacks team the business, this is the episode where we first delve into the catalog of the Rolling Stones with Aftermath. So that will be the third, but you know, not to be forgotten, last segment. You guys excited? I am. I'm pumped. All right. So instead of hearing me yammering on any longer, I am going to kick it over to Josh, who is going to tell us what we need to know about the trio that is known as Crosby, Stills, and Nash. 
All right. First up, we have in the opening montage, we had wooden ships, and now we're going to hear a little bit of Long Time Gone. It's been a long time coming. Okay, and we're back. So we got a lot of ground to cover with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, or as I like to call them, three wild and crazy guys. This album... CSN, for short. (laughs) Yeah. This album was uh, self-titled and released May 29th, 1969. This is their debut album, and it's currently 51 on besteveralbums.com, albums of the 60s. There are three members... Obviously, as the title of the album suggests, so you have David Crosby, formerly of The Birds, Stephen Stills, formerly of Buffalo Springfield, and Graham Nash, formerly of The Hollies. And The Hollies were a UK group that were part of the British invasion. Buffalo Springfield was a West Coast rock group that had Neil Young in it, and The Birds are The Birds. And you can check out episodes eight and two of Combing the Stacks to hear more about the birds, as well as a bonus episode about um, the birds and David Crosby. This, this Josh, is this the first super group? I mean, I'm just thinking right now, was there a, like, you know, because that's really what this is, right? Yeah, def- this was definitely, they were definitely considered a super group. I don't know if they were the first super group. I'd have to research that. Yeah. Um, but they I just def- can't think of anybody off the top of my head. So Weren't the Yardbirds could... kind of a super group? I don't know. They were early. Yeah. Well, they had a bunch of people in it, but that ended up doing other things. So they were, mm-hmm. I don't know if the time that they were a super group, but um, I don't know. Maybe we can clean that stack. Can I, can I give you some other context? When I told my dad we were covering this, he's like, is that the album where they're all sitting on the couch? I said, yeah, it is. He goes, that's a good freaking <laughs> album. So if that doesn't whet your appetite, there you go. It's also it. the it's also the album in, amongst many other Crosby, Stills and Nash albums on Spotify right now that has a vote sticker on it. So mm-hmm. I'm thankful for that because I totally didn't even know there was an election or anything. <laughs> and then I listened to Crosby, Stills and Nash on Spotify and said, "Shoot, is it time to vote already?" And sure enough, it is. So thank you, Crosby, Stills and Nash. Well, they they are a politically minded group, so I'm sure that has something to do with the vote sticker on the on Spotify. Uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash is also defined not only by the politics and their songwriting, but also by their vocal harmonizing. All three of the band members played guitar and were singer-songwriters. The group had been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as Crosby, Stills, and Nash, as well as individual members from each of their three previous groups. I'm only going to cover the band's initial formation up to, and up to the release of this first album, which covers the period of July 1968 to May 1969. Uh, As I said before, David Crosby was covered previously on previous episodes of Combing the Stacks. He only appeared on parts of um, the one album before being kicked out of the, the birds, and he was roaming around California without a band and 
living it up based on what I've read. And, and <laughs> well, he was seen. he was in multiple birds albums, right? Because he was in early birds. It was just that he he was booted, right? You know, in, yeah, in, midway in through young, Notorious young, Bird Brothers. Notorious got, Bird got Brothers. Out. Yeah, yep. so yes, he didn't make yes. it to Sweetheart of the Rodeo for those combing the stacks completists. So Crosby was in Younger Than Yesterday, somewhat in Notorious Bird Brothers, not at all in Sweetheart of the Rodeo. I, I, I can't imagine that he would have st- if he was there at all for you know Sweetheart of the Rodeo. He would have left like on day one. I don't think that that would have been sat well with him. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair, ac- ac- accurate description yes thank yeah. you for the clarification i meant to say that the albums that we've covered he was only uh, in part of um, now buffalo springfield is actually a band that we won't be covering at all so i'm going to give a little background on them um, in relation to probably stills nash they broke up in 1968 due to uh, drug related arrests and lineup changes with the band and tensions between stephen stills and neil young Drugs and tension in a band that involves members of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You don't say, Josh. I know. It's it's really hard to believe. Wait till you hear this story that I'm about to tell you. Excellent. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> so that all left bad vibes with everyone in Buffalo Springfield. Uh, one of the members of the band, Bruce Palmer, had so many drug arrests that he was deported back to Canada. Neil Young had broken up with Buffalo Springfield on more than one occasion. Um, he, he really seem to want to do his own thing and not be held uh, accountable or you know with a group he just wanted to be associated with crazy horse i think a lot of the time it must have just been a stage because neil young certainly didn't carry that through the rest of his career (laughs) yeah not not with this band either um, later on so there was an infamous incident where they were jamming at steven still's girlfriend's house in topanga canyon uh, buffalo springfield with eric clapton and they were playing really loudly, apparently, allegedly. And then the cops showed up and everyone got busted, except for Stephen Stills, who escaped through a window. It seemed like everyone was to blame uh, for the incident, but the band had run its course by that point. They, After that incident, they I think they broke up a week later. David Crosby had also filled in for Neil Young um, with Buffalo Springfield at one point when they played the Monterey Pop Festival back in June of 1967. Wasn't that part of the reason he got booted out of the birds, right? Because he just yeah. showed up on stage with Buffalo Springfield? Yeah, he did, they didn't like the fact that he that he bailed <laughs> for them. And, and he also like had that rant about the Kennedy assassination yes. and, like, yes. and everything. So, <laughs> Multiple and, and, which, shooters. Yeah, and which also has, which also got them, you know, uh, t- taken out of the Monterey Pop Festival film because they were like, who the hell wants to watch David Crosby just go well, spew on about as, this? As recounted, I believe it was in episode two of Combing the Stacks, where we covered Younger Than Yesterday. You can hear all about that uh, set of chain of events. Now, how how all of these people met, um, Nash had first met uh, David Crosby when the birds had toured the UK in 1966. Nash had met Stills at a party in Laurel Canyon at Peter Tork's house to bring it back to the monkeys connection. And as we talked about in a bonus episode, Stephen still tried out for the monkeys, but didn't make it because they thought he looked too old. So oh. he recommended <laughs> Peter Tork for the band. So there's another callback right there. Bonus episode number one, Cleaning the Attic. And then they finally, all three together, united at a party that is either at was at Mama Cass's house of the Mamas and the Papas or at Joni Mitchell's house in July of 1968. So two of the band members say one thing and one of the band members say it's another. Didn't sure they like all of- date I'm gonna Joni go with- Mitchell too? Is, if I remember correctly, like every single one of the guys at Crosby, Stills, and Nash at one point dated Joni Mitchell. Yeah, I think David Crosby had found, 
not you know discovered Joni Mitchell quote unquote mm-hmm. and he kind of brought her out to LA and got her started and hooked he had a lot of connections and knew everyone in the music scene at that time but I yeah, would also maybe right I would also say that if there's ever a dispute between stories I'm just going to go with whatever Graham Nash says cuz <laughs> that guy's probably the most reputable of the three <laughs> Yeah did the fewest that's, amount of drugs too, so it's not a high bar, I don't think. You know? No, when Neil Young is the sober voice of your group, when you become a four piece, you know. That, but continue. I'm sorry that we keep tangenting, Josh. Oh, it's, no, I appreciate it, and you guys are filling it in as well, adding some. We are the kings of context here, so um, <laughs> Nash, Nash had uh, quit the Hollies in December of 1968. So this was after the three of them had already met at the party and were singing. Um, you know, singing at the party, I should say, and after being creatively frustrated. So the direction of the Hollies was really, they were on the British, um, you know, invasion types of bands and they were playing pop hits and, and Nash wanted to do more creative ventures. And he, based on one of the, a documentary that I watched, he really wanted, he really vibed with the culture in LA and San Francisco and kind of that more like hippie scene um, versus the bands in the British invasion that were just churning out hits and really trying to, to mimic, you know, popularity that the Beatles were bringing uh, and other bands. The three of them had then uh, been signed to Atlantic records in 1968 by Ahmet Erdogan, who is the co-founder and president of Atlantic records. Um, this is the same label that we, that Aretha was on and, and many other bands that we've talked about. Buffalo Springfield was a former, you know, label. They were under Atlantic Records as well. So he had already had familiarity with Stills and and Neil Young later and some of that bands. According to the doc, the the uh, three of them had two ten- two main tenets when agreeing to work together. They did not want to be considered a group or formal band, hence the uh, three individual names in their in their as their group title and and if one of the band members had an issue with his girlfriend or a woman they could leave and go deal with it and there'd be no bad vibes (laughs) (laughs) that's like the most 1960s thing ever isn't it like if harsh vibes going on on your whatever relationship you have and i I'd probably say plural you know what I mean? you mm-hmm. can leave to go you know, deal with that shit so that's pretty fantastic as a as one of only two tenants for the band listen we don't have to talk about creativeness here but if i have some problems with my various partners i like need to leave and it can't be a thing yep so. exactly that must have been a big thing for all of them too to be like all right that's it that's a reasonable request because we've all been there right guys we need to uh take care of the ladies well, first and they all did date Joni Mitchell. I just looked it up. So like that must have like did any of them leave because they were having issues with her? You know what I mean? I, it just seems I don't know. That's a whole nother episode. Please, yeah. Please continue. Um, that could be a whole bonus episode soon, I think. And the other thing I was gonna say is that there was also some uh, contract negotiation by Erdogan to get Stills, no, to get Nash under uh, the Atlantic Records contract because he was still under contract. So at this point, Crosby had already been kicked out of the birds and Columbia had said, you know, he's a lost cause. He was out of his contract already. And then it was an easy easy um, move because uh, Stills was already with Buffalo Springfield. So he just came under that same umbrella anyway. And then they had traded or Erdogan had traded contracts with this guy from another label for for Nash's contract with the Hollies in exchange for one of the m- members of Buffalo Springfield and his new band Poco. A trade? Yeah. So you can trade. I you trade in music. It was San Francisco, so perhaps it was a trading post, right? That they were at. 
yeah oh that's that's what it said um yeah. i'll get the exact thing yeah so nash was still signed to epic records through the hollies and then erdogan worked out a deal with clive davis of that label to trade mm. nash in exchange for Richie Furre. And a player to be and, named later. I have never heard of anything like that. That's amazing. And his, and his band Poco, which I didn't really listen to or look into. but It kind yeah. of makes sense if you're a little bit tired of hearing what's on your bit. You, you know, just like sports, you swap, you know what I mean? And perhaps it works out for you. So maybe some draft picks later as well. Also of note, they had a, a powerhouse uh, a management team of Elliot Roberts and David Geffen, um, who really negotiated all of their things and david geffen became famous later for running a music label as well um the drummer on the album i should not forget was dallas taylor he was instrumental and he played on this album as well now stills is really kind of the the mastermind of this album he handled most of the instrumentation he played every lead guitar part he played the bass he played keyboards he wrote a lot of the songs now all three of them wrote songs and contributed to this album but he was really the coordinator and, and arranger for most of the music on this album uh, nash and crosby also provided some acoustic and rhythm guitar parts on songs stills in fact earned the nickname captain many hands by his bandmates due to his doing so much on this album yeah didn't he work like crazy hours too he was like five days straight he would just be in the studio like engineering and producing and he was yeah i heard that he was going nuts and just all over the place with this record yeah and he really had the creative juices flowing i think yeah on this. and not surprisingly i have also been nicknamed uh, captain many hands as well but in different contexts <laughs> for different for reasons yeah. yes <laughs> please continue josh <laughs> Um, the band uh, needed additional members, you know, because obviously a recording environment with stills doing everything is different than when you're on the road performing. Um, so they needed additional members in order to tour. Um, they, so they kept Dallas Taylor um, on, who uh, was drums, but they still needed a keyboardist. So this is where the idea of uh, bringing Neil Young aboard uh, came about. Um, they initially wanted Steve Winwood to join the band. Um, as a keyboardist and mm. you know he's a really good guitar player too but and singer but he had already started a new super group called blind faith which had eric clapton in it. i thought you were going to say he was caught in traffic josh <laughs> yeah <laughs> formerly of traffic um so this is when neil young came aboard he was suggested by erdogan as a keyboardist but also play guitar and so while he wasn't on this first album that we're going to be discussing he joined the band in july of 1969 so just as a quick refresher, this album came out in May 1969, and then Neil Young joined in July of 1969. So that's why it's often, you know, Crosby, Sills, Nash, and Young, or C CSNY. His, Neil Young's contract allowed him to be in the band as well as tour on his own as well. So that's another kind of that free Was he also allowed to deal with his women if problems came up as part of his contract, or was it negotiated separately? I have not researched Neil <laughs> Young yet, but gotcha. I'm sure that will come. That will, that's probably in there somewhere. Gotcha. Some other facts. After this album came out, their second performance together was at the Woodstock Festival in 1969 as part of their their multi-month tour. This album itself had two top 40 singles, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, which peaked at number 28 and marrakesh express which was number 21 on the billboard hot 100 this album peaked at number six on the top pop album charts this album was recorded at wally Hyder studios which is the same studio that ccr recorded 
those two albums that we talked about. Now, <laughs> I've got a story about that sofa on the on the cover of the album. So they took Do a pic- tell. <laughs> they took a picture of that album cover before the band was officially named. So you'll notice that in the picture they're they're in reverse order of the names on the album. So um, Nash is on the left, and and then and Crosby is on the right, and that was shot at an abandoned house with a sofa that was outside that they just randomly saw later on when they went to retake the picture again after they had named the the how <laughs> named the band or group or whatever you want to call them the house had already collapsed into rubble and the couch was gone much like soon to be their <laughs> yeah. uh, relationships with each other yeah that's like foreshadowing 101 yeah. so that's all the background i have what did you guys think of the album matt do take do take first. I'd so I I really like this this record. I only knew Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, which I'm surprised didn't make its way into the montage or the opening segment. That that song is I've always loved that song. Mm-hmm. And that might be it's almost like the quintessential 60s um hippie anthem you know it's just it's got uh, it's got great the harmonies are you know are are totally um you know uh, apparent in in various places it's it's like a prog song too there's different movements and different parts and the way it builds it's just it's so well done it is it's a it's a classic classic 60s song um and that was pretty much the only thing I knew. I, I did know Helplessly Hoping, but I never listened to it as much as I did here. And that was easily those two songs, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes and Helplessly Hoping for me are the one by far the best songs in this record. And they're mm-hmm. both Stephen Stills songs, I believe. Yes. Um, and the harmonies on Helplessly Hoping. I listened to that. Uh, uh, it kind of did a reverse order this time. I listened to the album without headphones first and then later on with a he- with headphones same and- matt same really yes. so did you know like when you listen to helplessly hoping the the harmonies it's like you got crosby on the left you got stills that's in both ears and then you've got nash on the right and it's really cool um experience to have for that so um but i i pretty much loved every song on this um there was only a couple i'm not a huge fan of the nash songs i think marrakesh express i didn't know that was a single and that that might be my least favorite song in this record. Um, it's and I don't know if it's just be. It's kind of goofy and it's got some weird instrument on it. I don't know. I don't know what that. It's like some sort of weird effect on the guitar or something. It's just. It's kind of. I find it annoying. Um, it's, and yeah, it does not age well. No, no. And no. Um, and then his other song, "Lady of the Island," it's kind of like this. It's it's okay. Um, but it's like this, and I don't mind you know softer songs. Um, cause right after it is helplessly hoping, which is, which is a very soft song and just gorgeous melodies and harmonies. Um, but yeah, the Nash songs, not as much, but the Steven still songs are strong. Uh, you could totally tell that Guinevere is a Crosby song. As soon as that came on, I'm like, this has to be Crosby. You know, it sounds yeah. like he's kind of, it's almost like, I don't want to say it's psychedelic, but it's almost like carrying what he was doing with the birds. I did, I did read something funny about that. I guess Miles Davis covered Guinevere in, in Bitches yep. Brew, mm-hmm. and which didn't make the Bitches Brew album, but it, you can find it on Spotify on like the extended version, like the four out four plus hours of Bitches Brew s- sessions. If you want to listen to it, and did you see that? Like, apparently Crosby went on Mark Maron's podcast in 2016 and t- was telling them a story about the the cover of that. And I guess Miles Davis had him over at his house and he played the, his rendition of Guinevere. And Crosby's like, yeah, I don't see this at all. It doesn't sound at all like my song. And Miles Davis kicked him out of the house. He's like, get out of here. <laughs> you know, so um, I found that funny. Um, but uh, great album. The harmonies are fantastic. And it's really funny to juxtapose their harmonies with their personalities and how they clash with each other because he couldn't be a more of a 180 
you know, from that. Um, but this is a classic band. Um, you know, I've, I've known them for a while. My, this is one of my, my mom had a bunch of their CDs and listened to them a lot. I've seen them live, the Crosby, Stills and Nash, and they were pretty good. Yes. I mean, you know, they still held it up, but I, a couple of years later, I think my parents and my, my uncles saw them with Neil Young and they were just talking about what a different experience that was because Neil Young like tears. If you see Neil Young live, he tears it up. He is like, he's like a 25 year old out there playing the guy. He's nuts. And then you've got these three other guys that are just kind of chilling out over on the side. But, uh, um, I, this is, I, I really like this. Uh, I, I really like this record. Nice. Gotcha. Well, I, I want to start by saying I actually was shocked going into this album by how little I knew of Crosby, Stills and Nash, considering they're a big band and certainly I'm aware of them. Um, but I, I really hadn't ever sat down and listened to a Crosby, Stills and Nash or a Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young album. So this was an interesting experience, but my takeaway, I liked the album. Um, I don't know if I liked it as universally as Matt did. I liked about half of it quite a bit, and then half of it was a little bit long and unfinished for me. Um, I'd be interested to hear what they sound like with Neil Young built in, because to me, each member of the band was very clear in terms of their purpose. Like A lot of the songs sound like sounded as if they were from the vein of David Crosby, like his spirit and his arrangement. Uh, Graham Nash, to me, is the strongest singer of the three of them, although they all have beautiful voices. But Nash is the one who really stands out to me. Mm. And Stephen Stills is an instrumentalist. Is His his parts always pop out. Um, and that was the number one thing I noticed. It's like, wow, Stephen Stills can really play. Um, for a while there at the beginning, it felt like every other song... I kind of was like, I like Sweet Judy, Blue Eyes. I've always felt the song's a little too long, but it is a seminal 1960s song. Then it went to Marrakesh Express, which like we talked about early, kind of ages. It's of the time. It's sort of, it's not psychedelic, but it's much like some psychedelic music and stuff, some stuff with sitars and some stuff with too many synthesizers. It sounds of an era and it mm. doesn't really translate to 2020 as well. I really liked Guinevere. I really liked Wooden Ships, the combination of Helplessly Hoping and Long Time Gone later in the album. Yeah. Um, was really brought the album, not that it needed to be brought back to life, but it was really a nice, um, nice two song combo later in the album. Um, I could do without some of the songs that 49 Bye Byes, for example, didn't really strike with me, but um, for a debut album, this is pretty remarkable. Um, also, I'd like to point out that um, as I, I, I don't usually do a lot of research on the albums I don't listen to because I enjoy listening to the bios, but I did in this case uh, look into a little bit of the, the creation of the band and I went to the Wikipedia page and there is, I don't know if you saw it, Josh, but there is about a three paragraph string in the Crosby, Stills and Nash uh, Wikipedia page, which is some of the funniest reading I've ever done in my life, where it talks about Stephen Stills saying that he participated in clandestine Vietnam War missions and <laughs> David Crosby having two girlfriends at all times and the different drugs and embroidered pillow. It's, it's a remarkable read. It's under CSNY reconciliation and further estrangement. So if you want to laugh, it's just fantastic reading. So, um, But as an album, going back to that, um, really good, very simple. Because the, the yeah. um, instrumentation is straight ahead. Um, there aren't a lot of bells and whistles outside of the occasional Eastern element in two of the songs. But for the most part, it's just it's guitar, harmonies, 
um, albeit harmonies in a different way than we did with Simon and Gar- Garfunkel last week. And as, as has been mentioned, I don't mean to um, prolong, but the combination of the three voices and especially how it was recorded is um, is part of the joy of listening to the album. So I, w- I would definitely say I enjoyed the album. Um, does it age as well as some of the other stuff that we've listened to? I don't know. It's very much a, a creature of the 60s, even though it was late in the 60s. And I'll be I'll be interested to revisit their catalog um, later to see how they alter their sound and, and proceed to the 70s, because I think that there's parts that they're going to have to leave behind in the 60s, and I'm sure that they did. Um, and certainly Neil Young alone being present, you know, will add a little bit more of an edge, I think, to the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this band really, uh, I really like this album. Um it was night and day listening to it on headphones versus the first time I listened to it. Oh, for so, sure. Yep. There, I think that's a tribute to Stills production um, and and probably the the production engineer and and all of that. This band really seemed to capture lightning in a bottle in a certain way at a certain time. Um, they kind of are the almost like the epitome of like the hippie generation or the hopes of the hippie um, the hippies before things you know kind of went the way of Altamont and and the Vietnam War and stuff and they also I think I read that you know and this can be speculated but they kind of swung the focus of rock and roll away from blues and like electric guitar back towards the acoustic and the singer songwriter um, motif which had been had you know kind of gotten away or the pendulum had swung swings back towards that and so people were really I guess because this album sold so well, people were really clamoring for that type of sound, right? That more authentic. Mm. Um, uh, well, there were a lot of bands. Sound. There were a lot of bands doing this kind of sound. I feel like, um, you know, the, the, this was when the Birds were doing "Sweetheart of the Rodeo," right, Matt? Um, I think around, they might have done that in '68, but yes, 68, I mean, late okay. latter part of '60. I know this is around the time where like the band is getting started, and to me, this. Crosby, Crosby, Stills, and Nash have a lot of similarities with the yes. band, in my opinion, um, yep. in terms of their sound. And I know we'll cover the band multiple times, but as I was listening to it, I couldn't help but think this was a companion piece for, especially music from from Big Pink. You're um, right. Yeah. Well, that well, okay. Was, that was, <laughs> That's that just was, what my ears told me. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was that was mentioned in a few articles I read as oh, well. Okay. That the band and this album and I think Sweethearts of the Rodeo are all kind of that oh. same. That well, same look at that type of. Uh, that sound that people liked. Although um, Sweetheart of the Rodeo is a little bit different because I was trying to think of what the birds were doing. And this is not, um, this doesn't line up with Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Yeah. I don't know if I would call it, this it, country yeah, it, really. It, it, this no, is, and, it's more folk than country. Yeah, and it, and it, it, like I said, it does sound to me a lot more like what I, and we'll do the band in a few. In fact, I think we do music from the big pink in a couple weeks. Right. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to use this as a touch point for that. But I'm just trying to think of what other bands were doing during this time. And you said that it was considered to be a move away from big guitar. So is that like Jimi Hendrix and the Stones? I mean, the Stones were doing like Let It Bleed and Hendrix was big. And I guess this is the well, probably the who, right? I mean, well, the, the who was, I mean, well, sort of, Tommy they was weren't doing 69. who's next. Yeah. They're yeah, right, they not right. doing who's next till a little later. So they're not really there yet. Maybe it was um, just more like, not that, swings you know everyone keeps making music obviously but they just bring some sort of welcome welcome back to this type of music i mean they're three artists at the top of their game you know lyrically Mm -hmm. and and 
musically. So you get yeah. the feeling they're like a band, like perfectly made for a certain mm-hmm. age of baby boomer. You know, like I just it feels like if Rolling Stones, oh like, yeah, how do we create a band in 1969? They'd be like, let's take David Crosby's enigmatic personality with a guy from the British Invasion and Graham Nash and an underappreciated talent like Stephen Stills and put them together and. There we go. It's like the ultimate, and and you know, I I know that, as you mentioned, they're like inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame like a, a ridiculous amount of times, right? Like seventeen different times mm-hmm. with six different bands apiece. So, um, I don't think that dissuades me from my opinion as well. But I don't want to take away from the album. It is a it is a very very good album, and the songwriting is not cheesy or bad. It's a it can be a little bit preachy at times, but never devolves into um, like parody. It's um. It doesn't age great, but it's not because it's not good lyrics. It's more just because the hippie scene, we know what came of it, right? It didn't become utopian and idealistic, so it seems a little bit naive at times. But the, well, the lyrics are strong. And even though they are kind of like, I, I do I do equate this. This is like a big, a huge band with a baby boom generation um, that, that really liked them. But I knew, people, I knew plenty of people growing up and you know people at our age and stuff that really liked them as well. We're just excited about going to see them live. And, and so I think that they definitely, you know, carried over to other, you know, to younger you crowds as well. Age, do you think they age as well as some of the other like 60s bands, though? That's I mean, kind of they, when I was I, listening I, to it. They're very much, to me, of the 60s. Yes, but I also think that there's an appeal to that. You know, just because they're not aging and yeah. going into more something modern, it doesn't mean that, that, that people don't want to hear that. There's a somewhat either a nostalgia for it or there's just like, a, oh, man, that would have been cool to be a part of or to be to, to be there for. Um, and I think also that they benefited, that I read a little bit that, you know, that Josh, you mentioned that, you know, they decided to call themselves by their names what that allowed to have happened later on was any time when Crosby or, you know, Crosby had a lot of, I mean, they all had a lot of issues, but there were times where they couldn't rely on him for anything. And they wanted just to, you know, Stills and Nash to work on something. And the record company was saying, yeah, that's great, but go get Crosby because we're not going to put out a Stills and Nash. Nobody wants Stills and Nash, you know, so Mm -hmm. they, and, and later on young, I mean, so when they, that, that was the brand and that really allowed them it forced them actually to work together because, Even though they hated each other many times and gotten in multiple, multiple fights, this was something that kind of like they had to put up with each other. Um, well, and how you know. often do we see that? I mean, the Who, same thing, right? They knew they were better as a unit, but they really, <laughs> none of them really got along very well. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I'm going to say something controversial too here, Matt, and you're going to be very upset for me. Oh, you know who okay. else I hear a little bit in this album and coming later? I hear a lot of what would be the sound of the Eagles. In mm. I have always heard it in the sound yeah. of both Crosby, Stills, and Nash and the band. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if either of them would want to take credit for that, but that sort of yeah, Eaglesy sound. Well, and, and was some present. Fleetwood Mac, I would say also. Oh yeah, I, I, yeah, I especially like the early Fleetwood Mac, the Fleetwood Mac that's not as well known. You know, pre Lindsey Buckingham's. You know. Um, uh, Stevie Nicks Fleetwood Mac definitely but but um, aren't they all from like California yeah it's like and like Jackson Brown like the uh, what is it oh the, yeah what, Jackson the, Brown too would make sense what are they yeah. called what valley or canyon the, Laurel, the Laurel Canyon, Laurel Canyon yeah. yeah like Joni go, Mitchell yep. Mamas and the Papas it's they all kind all, of they it. were all hanging out there yeah and living Charles there. Manson you know <laughs> rent was cheap apparently <laughs> actually no that, that, are abundant so, yeah, yeah, Josh, talk about this. Who, any sex mansion update? Did we learn about any more we details? We knew Stephen Stills was notorious for having sex mansions. So I, yeah. I tried to focus on. I had a lot of ground to cover. I, st- yeah. I stayed 
you know, added the I heard, sex mansion. Yeah, I knew. I I also heard that like Crosby was getting like like BJ's in like meetings and stuff. He would just be sitting <laughs> in a table, and all of a sudden somebody's like, "Is he getting head right now?" Um, He's always known for his self control, David Crosby. So, <laughs> well, the yeah. other thing that I came across that I found funny was like I guess one of the Birds' earlier producers, Terry Melcher. He was asked in an interview. Um, you know, who was the hardest person he ever had to work with. And by far, he said he's like David Crosby. He didn't even bat an eye. Well, and, he, you... and, and number two was Charles Manson. Well, <laughs> so, did, you, did you see uh, David Crosby's reaction, by the way, to like Eddie Van Halen's death? Somebody asked oh, him, like, what's yeah. your favorite Eddie Van Halen part? And his answer on Twitter was, meh. <laughs> right, so like, right. Oh he got David slammed Crosby for that. Answer. Yeah. So it just, yeah. And then he had yeah. to like, yeah, come back and say, look, I didn't think that, you know, I'm sorry if I was mean, but I didn't, I just didn't. He didn't I do just thought his music me. blew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Compounding the mistake, as they uh, say. But he, uh, but he anyway. can't not step in it. I did. Yeah. We, we've, I, we've, I did want to give some more thoughts on on this album. I thought sure. um, the harmonies kind of transcend any uh, feeling of you know it being of the time. I think that still carries yeah. really well. They're all three really good singers, especially together. The, that's when they're doing that on the album. It's great. Um, I thought of for some reason I thought of Alice in Chains when I listened to Guinevere. I thought they should cover that song. Um, wow, that it would be <laughs> really interesting. interesting. Um, I'll have of, to listen to that back under that context. Uh, yeah, it's like it's weird. It's like one of the first things I thought of. Um, Crosby wrote that song and it was about three women he loved. Um, yeah, there's a shock women. along with Try It. Actually, I think he said that that was the best. So- what I think he might have said that that's the best song he ever wrote. Which, mm. yeah, I, you know, I think I saw that too. Um, I'm with you matt that i didn't like uh the nash songs as much um mm-hmm. i'm surprised marrakesh express was so popular in fact yeah it's um, kind of goofy and i didn't like lady of the island that was probably my least favorite song on the album yep. but graham nash that. graham nash too when you see him like being interviewed or you see him perform live he's kind of annoying too he's just like this he's a goofy dude and he's like he, he's totally totally basking in you know the spotlight and he's one of these guys that says things. He's trying to be funny or cute or you know, uh, you know, witty. And it just—I don't think he pulls it off. So I—I I mean, his heart. I would probably agree with you, John. He's probably got the strongest voice, the high mm-hmm. notes that he is hitting, and how mm-hmm. clear and crisp they are, yep. with eff- effortless. You know, it's just like it's no problem. Um, it's fantastic. But I don't know if his writing got any better. Um, but I, I thought actually pre road downs. I, I didn't mind. I thought that was kind of had that cool little looping backwards guitar part that I yep. thought was pretty good. I really that song. Too. Um, but uh, but as, his other two not so much, and as much as we um, as much as we make fun of David Crosby, I think his songs are the strongest on this lyrically. Um, actually, "Long Time Gone" in particular is a really well written song, I, and I'm pretty sure it's about the assassination of one of the Kennedys, isn't it? Like in terms of the lyrics. Oh yes, it's uh, about yeah Robert. I think Robert F. Kennedy. And okay. it was it was co-written by uh, Paul Kantner of Jefferson Airplane as well. Mm, okay. I thought that was Wooden Ships. He wrote uh, he wrote "Long Time Gone" too. Oh, I may have wrote my notes down wrong. You're right. It's wooden chips. I'm sorry. Um, and what was I going to say? Oh, well, wooden so, chips. I can see the influence of Jefferson Airplane there too, because it does have yeah. a little bit of that. And you, and you'll hear it in the piece we did at the beginning. Yeah, wooden chips. I think is about Vietnam. Um, and I also I liked Forty Nine. Um, buys. Yeah, also. I like that. I like that too. I liked it. I think, and, like I said, the only ones I didn't like were the Marrakesh Express and, yeah. and Lady mm-hmm. of the Island. And the, I love the alliteration on Helplessly Hoping, too, and, like, the one, two, three, four. That's a really cl- um, cleverly written song when you listen to the lyrics. 
I also think it's I also think it's part of like Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. I'm kind of like I'm not sure what the hell they're talking about, but man, I don't care. Like <laughs> yeah. that's it's, that's uh, Judy that's, Collins, right? Isn't yeah. that, that's, is, is that what it's about? Yeah. It's well, about his Stills' former girlfriend, on and off. Yes. I, I don't know how I know that, but I, I think it's because the song's so damn popular. I was curious one time about what it's about. So, yeah, well, that could have been about in, that could have been about everything. earthworms, and I would have been amazed by it. You know, so yeah. It, it, yeah, the music's that. Good. I am the lyrics guy, Josh, or yeah. as we've said before. So yeah, <laughs> there yeah. there is four distinct sections to Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, and the sweet is kind of a play on words because you know Sweet Judy um, mm-hmm. versus the sweetness music and. And you can pick out those different sections, and I I got some Indian uh, Indian music in that as well, Indian raga mm-hmm. or the guitar parts. But yeah, this is a really strong album. Um, I'm interested to hear their next album with Neil Young on it and see how that mm-hmm. compares. Gotcha. All right. Anything you want to add, Matt? Before we move over to your segment on the Beatles, I think I'm good. Then Go listen please. to it. It's classic. Helplessly mm-hmm. hoping. Then please please me, Matt, and move to oh, the next boy. section. Yeah. Oh. Here we go. All right. Well, debut album from the Beatles. Please, please me. Um, So that's the song actually you heard in the opening montage. And now we are going to play a clip from probably their most successful and uh, popular cover, Twist and Shout. So I was Twist and Shout, and we are, the, when we first did this list, this, this album was number 50, um, and it is uh, on the best ever albums list of the 60s, and now it's moved down to 53. Um, it was number, ni- number three in 1963 and 431 of all time. It was released on March 22nd, 1963, and it, although it, the recording was technically from September 1962 through February of 1963, 10 of the 14 songs on this album were recorded in one session on February 11th, 1963. Um, I've read different reports. It was really anywhere between 11 and 15 hours of recording. And they just laid down 10 of the 14 songs. Um, the four songs that had already been recorded were um, singles. So the, uh, it was um, Love Me Do with the B-side of P.S. I Love You. And then Please Please Me with the B-side of Ask Me Why were already released. And they were recorded earlier uh, in the fall of Is that why John Lennon's voice sounds like it's about to like crack in half during Twist and Shout? Because the yeah. last song? Yes. And we will get okay. to that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, okay um, um, so... Eight of these, eight of the 14 songs were Lennon McCartney originals. And actually, it's interesting that this is the only album that those songs are listed as McCartney Lennon songs. And I don't know why that is. They, they were listed as McCartney Lennon. And then any, every other song after that was listed as Lennon McCartney. So I didn't really see a reason behind that, but it is, it's of note. Um, it was also listed at, in 2012, when Rolling Stone had their, um, 500 top 500 albums of all time and the when they redid the list in 2012 it was number 39 and then the most recent list that came out it is not on at all so it dropped it dropped at least 461 (laughs) spots so um it's which which just highlights kind of how drastically different that list is um but yeah so 
uh, quick, uh, just kind of leading up to this album. So Brian Epstein was the Beatles manager and he became their manager about a year prior to this record being recorded. He had shopped the band around several times and they got several rejections, including one uh, label that was telling him that pop music and rock music is on its way out. Um, I'm pretty sure that guy got fired uh, a couple months later. Um, so George, uh, so he finally, Epstein finally finds George Martin, uh, who was a producer who worked for EMI, and, and Martin signed them in March 1962 to their Parlophone label. Uh, his first session with the band was in June of that year, and he didn't like their drummer because, remember, at that time it was Pete Best. And um, so he basically said, you guys got to get a better drummer, and the Beatles were on their way outs with him anyway. So they ended up firing him. They hired Ringo, and um, they showed up later in September to record with him. Um, but Martin had already called in another uh, drummer, session drummer, Andy White. Um, he didn't want to get burned by another bad drummer. So it's also interesting on that on this record, those the songs that they recorded that day, Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You, were uh, Ringo was not on the, dr the drummer for those songs. It was Andy White. Ringo had to play the tambourine and the maracas. And <laughs> I don't think he ever forgave George Martin. He, al he always kind of held a grudge against George Martin for that. But um, so that's a little Beatles trivia for you. So. They did release two singles, Love Me Do, and then Please Please Me. They both did pretty well. They, they charted very well, especially Please Please Me, which was their first number one single in the UK. And that's when George Martin said, all right, guys, let's get together. Let's record an album. Um, what do you got? And they just said, let's just record what our stage act is right now. Um, so they originally thought that they might record it at the Cavern Club, uh, but they thought, which was the club that the Beatles were playing in Liverpool, but they thought better of it. And they just decided to record an Abbey Road, which they did. Um, and yes, it was done in one session, uh, one long, long session. Lennon, not only, uh, you know, John, yes, they did sing Twist and Shout last because he knew that he was going to be tearing his vocal cords on it but Lennon recorded this album with a cold he had a pretty bad cold that his throat was 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 doing poorly to begin with so he had to suck lozenges and drink milk all day to kind of help soften and soothe his voice um and yeah they closed they did all those songs and they did they did uh they they closed with twist and shout um and they did that in one take they try they tried to do it a second time but Lennon's voice was clearly gone so what you hear and that on that classic song is is that one take after 10 plus 10 to 14 hours of recording um and george martin was was quoted as saying i don't know how they do it we've been recording all day but the longer we go on the better they get um and so this essentially is just them doing their they they needed an album and this is them doing their stage act with a couple of singles that were already released um it did hit the top of the uk charts and remained there for 30 weeks before being replaced by their second album with the beatles um and this is the first non-soundtrack album to spend more than one year in the uk top 10 charts it was on that chart for, for uh, 62 weeks um so this is quite this was quite a uh, a shock to the uh, to the to the establishment because really the stuff that was selling the most were like music soundtracks and play and musicals and things like that so um that's about all i got on the bio here so um beatles first album what do we think about it let's start with you john Oh, it's it's like it's like candy. You know what I mean? It's a great album. Um, and especially in the context of when it was released in 1963, when you think of it from that, it's I'm sure it was a remarkable album uh, to listen to in 1963. Uh, it, it's I always I, this is one of my favorite Beatles albums, although I wouldn't necessarily say it's one of the best Beatles albums um, because it is a lot of covers. It it's, almost sounds like a girl group album. 
um, recorded by the Beatles, um, which is not a negative thing, um, all the way down to them inexplicably doing the song Boys, uh, the Ringo Sands. I, I still <laughs> That's an odd one, isn't always it? Isn't thought yeah, that was such, such an interesting song. choice. Uh, more power to them if they're trying to make it as like a transgressive statement, but it just, it's weird. Um, I, I'll also say that to me, and this may be heresy to some people listening, the John Lennon songs with vocals are just way better on this track, way, way better. Um, and I know that, you know, takes out Love Me Do and, um, gosh, I'm trying to think. Like uh, He sings on Love taste, Me Do. Taste of Honey. No, I'm saying the McCartney songs are Love Me Do, A Taste of Honey. Are you talking about the ones that he wrote? Yeah, that, that he sang. I'm not so much real. I'm thinking singing because most okay. of the songs on this album were were Lennon leads. Um, yeah, he I did. Like I, those, McCartney yeah. did. I saw her standing there. Um, he sings right, on I that. Saw her standing there, yeah, which is a great song. So I, I, that may counter my argument. But for the most part, like I love the song "Chains." I love the song, which is actually George Harrison singing. Isn't it is. It? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like I like that song too. It's I think his first first song yeah. that he ever sang sang lead on. Yep. And what's the other song Harrison sings on this? Um, he sings the second one he sings on is um, "Do You Want to Know a Secret," which oh, was a, right, mostly right. a yep. Lennon composition. And oddly enough, that, that was like the a Lennon song. Yeah, th- that was the most successful song sung by George Harrison until something in 1969. Wow! So all those years, yeah, it, it, it took something for him to really uh, mm. do better, you know, to have a more successful song that he sang lead do on. Do better, so. George. Yeah, but but yeah, Anna go to him, which is a definite Lennon song. Um, and he sings in too. I think by himself with no McCartney. Um, I love that song. I love Chains. I love Anna, Anna, Anna go to him was a cover, John. It was a cover, right? But I'm saying Lennon's singing it. Like right. it's it's as, and also top, like lyrically, it's the type of song that Lennon would write. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I, I think even now, I know that they talk about Lennon. We talked. We did um, Beatles for Sale, and they talked about Lennon getting more of his edge and his Dylan period. But you could already see in terms of what songs Lennon is singing what constitutes a Lennon song and what constitutes a McCartney song, even when yeah. you're picking the covers, can't you? Because the McCartney songs are always a little bit sweeter and the Lennon songs are always a little bit more uh, nuanced and harder edged. Um, but Salty. yeah, there's singles. There's yeah, <laughs> there's singles all over the place. Like please, please me, love me do. Um, I'd talk about the instrumentation, but it's, it's pretty straight. Once again, just like the first, it's pretty straightforward. There's harmonies, there's, Lead and bass guitar and rhythm guitar, hand claps like girls group harmonica. Girl Let's not forget so, the harmonica. Har- right, harmonica. Yep. Mouth organ, Josh. It's the mouth organ. <laughs> mouth organ. Sorry, is that different? <laughs> no, that's what the Brits called it. Oh, I think okay. what Lennon called it anyway. Depends on who's doing it, Josh. I believe. Yeah. So. <laughs> gotcha. yeah. And uh, yeah, and so uh, yeah, I don't really know what to expand on right here, and I, mm. I, I'm sorry for sounding so. Non non nuanced in my conversation, but it's a it's a great pop album. It's a spectacular pop album in the context of its time. You can put this on at any time. I know this album extremely well because I've listened to it about a hundred times mm-hmm. uh, at different times or another, and the replayability is ten out of ten. So um, easy to recommend. The Beatles would do certainly a lot more complex stuff than this, and you know, especially middle period Beatles would take some of what this sound was and and make it a little bit better, but uh, you can't really go wrong with this album. Yeah. Right on. I thought this was a really strong debut album, and I I liked it better than the other two 
albums that we've talked about already. I think the yeah, strength. I, of, I think the strength of this album uh, is the originals of the songs, and I didn't. And I think there's less covers on here than than those other two albums that um, you know, especially that one that had a lot of. Uh, you know, also with the Beatles covers. was yeah. pretty much all covered. Yeah. I think it. I, I think it actually might be. It's it's similar. If it's if it's more originals, I wouldn't say that it's too much more because they all had their fair share of covers. But okay, well, I guess I guess maybe the strength of the original songs just you know steamrolled over those covers for me because mm. I didn't I didn't really mind it much. Um, I thought Misery and Chains were great, like deeper cuts of the Beatles. And is it? I'm seeing that Chains was written by Geffen and King. Is that yeah? Correct? That was another CTS Legends. <laughs> yeah. yeah, CTS G- Legend yeah. Geffen and King, and that's a great cover. I love that song. Yeah, yeah. really. That's my favorite song on the tra- the album. Uh, please, please me is a close second. I mean, the fact that they had you know, I saw her standing there. Please, please me, love me do, and Twist and Shout on this album is. Mm-hmm. I mean, no wonder they were who they were. Um, it's just it's kind of hard in some respects to think like that there was nothing else like them out there you know it's kind of, you think of the beatles and the beatles are always there for us but for that back then this was like a fresh new sound right and it just well, kind if of you blows were, my mind if you were not listening to black music yes then oh, they must have yeah. been but if you were that you know and i think the beatles would be the first to mention it you know what i mean that they they took some of that music and and presented it to a larger audience. Oh yeah. Um, so I do yeah. want to contextualize that. That's not to take away from the Beatles' brilliance, but um, they didn't come out of like a total vacuum. Uh, yeah. Vacuum. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and so yeah, it's it's really hard. <laughs> I I did find that Ringo song really funny. Um, the boys. It's just a weird <laughs> like outlier um, on the album. Is it? Was it? It was it had to have been recorded originally by like a girl group or the like Shirelles. late oh okay no. there you go I was gonna say it's got to either be a late fifties like female singer or a girl group because like, an early girl group not like, like why did he Supremes. choose to sing that though I mean so <laughs> and that's and that's because yeah and and John you said well maybe they were there was like a play on something or they were trying or to make transgressive it, you know yeah. to, to knock down more, but, like norms McCartney McCartney is quoted as saying quote any one of us could hold the audience Ringo would do boys which was a fan favorite with the crowd and it was great though if you think about it here's us doing a song and it was really a girl song i talk about boys now or i was like or it was a gay song but we never even listened it's just this great song i think that's one of the things about youth you just don't give a shit i love the innocence of those days now so, he's so did he mean gay in the literal form or in the, like the uh i think it could have been he, taken either way but either his, way yeah okay. yeah i think he um I, I think that he his quotes are just saying it was a fun song we didn't think about the context of that, although they did change the words because it says, um, I think the first line is like, my girl says when I kiss her lips, they changed that because the Shirelles voice version is my boy says when I, so they did mm. invert one of the, the parts. So of the they, song. Did, they didn't want to be but, too gay, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. gay. Well, then I thought that I thought, well, maybe they're just, this is Ringo. think this is like them. Hey, Ringo, you sing the song. And before Ringo, they, they had yeah, like played trolling the song for them, a kind while. Of? Yeah, yeah. But, but Pete Best used to sing this too, when he was the drummer, but so they, it was a drummer sang song. And then I was like, well, maybe they're just saying, hey, Ringo, if you want to join the band, you got to sing this song about boys and say it like you mean it. But in the <laughs> actually, background, it actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but in the background, they're all going, yeah, yeah, boys. So they're egging it on. <laughs> they're all part of it, too. So that doesn't really make any sense. But yeah, McCartney just kind of said it's a great song. We sang it. Who cares? Whatever. So 
yeah, I, I would at say the that end of the day it doesn't matter. But. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. And good good on them for being comfortable in their own skin. But I will say, please please me and love me do are probably two of the best examples of Lennon and McCartney harmonies, and they're right next to each other. And it's funny because they're inverted. Um, I because th- I think Lennon takes the lead with McCartney kind of in the background part and please please me, and then they mm-hmm. reverse in love me do, and that's a really cool two song set because you really get to hear the layering of their voices and just flipped. So uh, that's tracks seven and eight. And I think, mm-hmm. I think one ends side one on one, if I remember yeah. reading it correct, and then start side two on the other. So that would be, right. yeah, that's, that's really cool stuff. So those are great songs. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I of course love this record. And I think that so far that the best ever albums is getting the order right. As far as I would put it, right. I would say with the Beatles is probably my least favorite record. And then I'd say, Beatles for sale, and then I would probably put this. So so far, I think they got it. But this is, yeah, I I I would say that this is a jump up for me from those last two. Like it's 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 not only I like it better, I like it considerably better. I think um, as an overall whole, uh, it's just the energy is so palpable in this record. And this yeah, is this, this is, is the is, opposite of Beatles for sale, isn't it? Yes, this is them. This is them showing what they did best at that time. Um, just putting on a really great show um that real a lot of positive and the energy is just is is just all over the place um i i i don't think i I don't know i i love the covers i think i I agree i think chains is great i think i twist and shout is is classic right yeah i mean i don't even people hear that song and it's like you never even know what it sounded like prior to the beatles doing it because that's that was been their most successful song And, and actually that song had a resurgence in 1986 because it was it was probably one of the things that catapulted Matthew Broderick's career and because it was on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And then like the next week, what was that? That Rodney Dangerfield movie, Back to School Back came to school, out. Yeah. And and so he, I, I got to say, Matthew Broderick does a much better John Lennon than Rodney Dangerfield does because Matthew Broderick in that movie, it's like per- perfect John Lennon um, to the point where they probably actually just played it. But Rodney Dangerfield yeah. actually sings it in his voice. But that that made it back into the charts. The song made like hit the charts in the 80s. Um, as a resurgence of that. So I thought that that was kind of funny. Um, but uh, no, it's a, it's a great record. Um, and I another in- interesting tidbit. So Taste of Honey probably might be my least favorite song on this. Yeah, um, I like that song. <laughs> it, was, it was originally an instrumental for, the, for a play of the same name, but then they eventually made it into, I don't know if they did a musical, but then they started um, putting vocals behind it. Do you know who the, who the, the first vocal performance was performed by? Never guess this. Of Bill, the Beatles, like who? No, did, or the original artist? No, the original. No, well, I guess you could say it was the original artist. I mean, he didn't write oh. it or anything like that, but he performed no it. A Star Wars fan's favorite, Billy D. Williams. What? Wow. <laughs> Billy D. Williams sang this, and it's total. It's like a totally different version. It was later redone what? by some dude named Lenny Welch, and that's the one that's most like the one that you. Hear well, it on goes the back here. to what I was saying that the Beatles were primarily covering black music i mean twist and shout the beatles version is fantastic and probably in many ways is the the version but that's isley brothers song originally um it was actually the first the first there's a little story that so it was first performed by a band called the top notes um with king curtis and the cookies so king curtis we talked about last week um and it was produced by phil Spector. but the but the Mm -hmm. writer one of the writers um bert a guy named bert burns um, did not like Spectre's production. Okay. Yeah, Burt Burns. 
he didn't like Spectre's production and he felt that he ruined the, he felt, yeah, basically ruined the song. Um, so then he took it to the Isley brothers and they were the ones that made it popular. And that was what this version was really based on. So imagine um, thinking that you're like going to outproduce Phil Spector, by the way, that's, I mean, at the time it probably didn't mean anything cause he was just getting started, but right. like, you know, it's still, it's kind of funny in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, no, Spector, it, he's not going to have much of a career. No. No, well, he doesn't anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. Um, so I, yeah, I love this album. I, I agree, Josh. I think Misery is a great. That's a great deep cut. That's a that's a Lennon McCartney original. It's also the first Beatles song to ever be covered by anybody. Some dude named Kenny Lynch covered it. Um, actually, I think they originally wrote it for somebody else. They wrote it for um, this woman, Helen Shapiro, who was one of Britain's most popular female singers at the time. Um, but I guess her manager didn't feel it was right for her, so. Um, they ended up they ended up uh, recording it themselves, and then I guess Kenny Lynch co- covered it as well. But great record, um, v- high energy, high recommend. I don't think I mean I'm trying to think of what really. St- I think I think the one two punch of I saw her standing there in misery are really great ways to open it. Mm-hmm. They got some great covers on here um, with with chains with uh, twist and shout. Uh, Baby, it's you is a great song too. That was another Sherelle. That was actually performed by the Sherelles as well, John. So your 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 assumption of this sounds like kind of like girl, a girl group, um, you know, type songs that, that that was definitely true, but, um, yeah, man, this is just the beginning for them, but, uh, very, yeah, very, uh, fantastic record. So. Great. Yeah. If you have, if you haven't listened to this record, go, go seek it out. It's great. It all is. Right. And, and I think that's all I got so we can move on. All right. We are on to segment three and we are on to the Rolling Stones. And where the hell do we begin with the Rolling Stones? Well, I can tell you where we're going to begin. I'm going to tell you what was in the montage and what I'm going to play now. So in the montage was a song from only the UK version of this album, Aftermath, Mother's Little Helper. And now we are going to segue into Under My Thumb. Under my thumb, her eyes are just under my thumb Well, I I can't still look at someone else It's down to me Oh, that's what I said The way she talks when she's spoken to Down to me The change has come She's under my thumb Say the song And we are back out from under mixed thumb and we are back on to our third segment on the Rolling Stones. Um, We will be covering five, I believe, Stones albums over the course of the 60s and the 70s. Sadly, Matt, Tattoo You from the late 70s did not make its way into the charts for best ever albums. So we'll have to hold off on. Yeah, I know. It's a it's a disappointing one. But uh, uh, I'm going to give a very brief bio of the Stones because that could be a whole hour and a half episode of Combing the Stacks on its own right, just the bio of the Stones. Um, But I'll give the basics and then in future albums and even as we're talking, I'll add in some context since there's quite a bit I can add. But um, the best way to think of the Rolling Stones is that they were formed as a group in 1962 in London. And in many ways, they are representative of what was called Swinging London, which overlaps a little bit with mod culture, which we talked about in uh, multiple Who episodes, uh, especially the one where we covered My Generation. But Swinging London also had the mod era of it. It also can kind of be tied in with a lot of other cultural elements, sometimes parodied uh, in different things. Austin Powers comes to mind of something that was sort of 
covering swinging London, the the model Twiggy and multiple models that were the the tall and and stick thin models were from swinging London, bright colors, sort of. It's sort of like I shouldn't say it's an answer to San Francisco in 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 hippie culture in the United States because it wasn't. It was sort of a more high end middle class. Uh, to upper middle class pursuit, but in some ways it shared some of the same ideas like free love and recreational drug use and breaking down mores and breaking away from traditional suburban life. Yeah, um, baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Jagger and Richards were childhood friends and classmates throughout school. Um, the rest of the band came about when uh, the uh, the rest of the members of the band were in a band called the Blues Boys. Uh, it, so... It also, the Blues Boys, and here, Matt, will do a segment for you. When I say the rest of the band, I'm talking about Bill Wyman, who plays bass, uh, Charlie Watts, who plays drums, and Ian Stewart, who played piano and would eventually be unceremoniously dumped from the six-piece Rolling Stones when they became a five-piece Rolling Stones, which we'll talk about. But the other member uh, who was there briefly was Dick Taylor, not to be confused with Mick Taylor, who would join the band post-Brian Jones, uh, but Dick Taylor. Uh, and Dick Taylor ended up founding another band that we talked about. Do you remember what band Dick Taylor was in? I do. It was the Pretty Things. You got it. You do know Dick, Matt. There you go right there. So Love that, uh, Dick. You got it. So the, the Blues Boys featured the, the, uh, the well-named Dick Taylor along with Brian Jones, Charlie Watts, the drummer, and uh, Ian Stewart. I'm sorry, I mentioned um, uh, Wyman uh, earlier. He does not come until a little bit later, so I apologize. So the original version of the band, Mick Jagger vocals, Keith Richards lead guitar, um, Dick Taylor for just a little bit on rhythm guitar, uh, Ian Stewart on piano, uh, Charlie Watts on drums, and Brian Jones on guitar. And that is going to be the version minus Stewart that is... Uh, going to be the classic Stones lineup with one switch where Dick Taylor leaves and he is replaced by the man that I just mentioned, Bill Wyman. And that would stay uh, the the lineup until uh, late 1968 when Brian Jones's personal problems catch up to him shortly after this album. He is He's fired from the band, but they allow him to make a statement saying he leaves the band and he is dead one month later um, mm-hmm. from what is largely uh, is a drowning uh, and it's been classified as death by misadventure is the coroner's uh, version of it. So this, this really, that is what it was called. And they reinvestigated it later to make sure there wasn't foul play or a drug overdose. But they said that while there were drugs involved and in the system, it was a drowning caused by death by misadventure. Um, and that would have been another great name for the Rolling Stones, Death by Misadventure, in terms of how they were living in the 60s. But uh, instead, the Stones kind of came together as due to their love of, you, you'll be shocked by this, blues and American rock and roll. Uh, they start gigging, and pretty quickly they get a residency at the Crawl Daddy Club in Richmond, London, in February of 1963. This overlaps with them signing a 19-year-old manager, Andrew League Oldham, um, who's with them pretty much um, through Aftermath before he has a pretty epic meltdown himself and gets relieved of his status. In fact, at one point, he actually disappears on the band and leaves them to fight some legal issues related to a drug uh, arrest. And that was basically the last stall, and Mr. Oldham is moved out. Uh, But before 
Mr. Oldham has moved out, he had some pretty damn good ideas, one of which is that instead of trying to wear suits like the Beatles and go that way, he decided to juxtapose them with the Beatles and make them sort of mm. the dangerous version of the Beatles, um, the more salt-of-the-earth Beatles, the sexier Beatles. And I think actually not only did that work in the time period, but I think that's for many people how the Stones juxtapose against the Beatles in general. Yeah, uh, I think for a lot of people that in terms of playing off of each other, um, he also decides that Stuart does not look the part of this young band uh, and he ends up kicking him from the band because he says wow. six was too many for the picture, meaning both the picture on the album and later. However, the Stones, who were not always known for being the greatest people in the world, did do pretty well by Stuart. They kept him on as a touring member of the band and an unofficial member of the band all the way until his death in 1986. Oh, wow. So, even wow. though he was um even though he was booted from the formal band he still was very much a part of their um their tours and uh different stuff along the way so they i think they i think there was a realization that he he was done wrong by but also a realization that probably the decision was correct the great irony is that bill wyman who had replaced dick taylor was actually older by two years <laughs> than um Stuart, uh, and Stuart was kicked out for seeming too old and sort of stodgy. He was heavier compared to the rest of them who had the classic tall and thin look that lined up with the swinging London ideal. And actually the stones still look like that to, to, to this very day, that sort of thinner um, version. So if he looked, group. if he was, if he was a little thinner, maybe looked a little sexier, he would have been a full member of the band. Sounds like. Per, perhaps, although he, uh, Mr. Oldham was very much a believer that the band should have been five people as well he thought that mm. it looked better on an album cover so i think he <laughs> might have been there it's funny because bill wyman actually didn't unveil his age i don't know the exact year but i think it was until like 1969 when he sort of just casually dropped his age which was at least five or six years older than was reported in the press and in some cases like eight years older because they actually sometimes build him as the youngest member of the band even though he was the oldest and that was maybe his own insecurity but that's a whole nother story in its own right um one thing that also stands out about the stones from the 60s is like they're one of the few bands from the 60s that actually got a great record contract so hmm. kudos to mr oldham who didn't have any experience, I'd like to also put, had to have his mom co-sign their contracts and his agent's license because he had not reached the age of majority. Yet somehow he was able to negotiate a rock deal that allowed them three times the typical royalty rate for a new act, full artistic control of their recordings, Jeez. and ownership of their master tapes in 1964 josh and matt so mr olden may have gone crazy and not done well by them in their legal stuff but man did they get a, a great deal from deca compared to lots of, you know you think of like john, ccr and stuff yeah, like john that. fogarty we should have called him up i was just <laughs> yeah, gonna I was say. About to say john fogarty could have definitely benefited from having andrew well, and Oldham around and yep. it's also a far cry from alan klein right like isn't that the man sure. the guy that got to manage later on that was kind of like the opposite of that that kind of screwed uh, them yes. over yeah. Yep. And, wow. And yes. And uh, we'll get into that around some girls and exile on Main Street, because that's when that all kind of blows up a little bit. So real, that will... real double edged sword having a 19 year old manager there. Well, and he was a character and a half. And I've got so much bio and stuff to talk about that I, I can't really go into that. But let's just say Mr. Oldham was as much as a personality, a Rolling Stone, as the Rolling Stones were themselves in terms of hedonistic lifestyle. Um, so the Stones, we talked about their great uh, 
their great record contract. They're basically playing, getting a great buzz. They're, at this point, the Beatles have broken. Some other bands like the Kinks have broken in England, and there's some thought that they're going to break in America. Of course, we know the Kinks never really break in America in the 60s like they should because of that bizarre story of them being banned from the country for five years. But the Stones kind of become the second band to break. For the first three years, 64, 65, and 66, they're kind of doing the Beatles model where they're releasing lots of covers. Um, they're doing some of their own stuff, but for the most part, they're doing blues and R&B covers. So lots of B.B. King, Chuck Berry, Howlin' Wolf, um, just the standards there. And then they kind of get a break in England. And this is kind of funny how we talked about Lennon and McCartney. And I didn't want to bring it up when Matt was talking, but he talked about how Lennon and McCartney had gifted a song to a female songwriter. Well, he gifts I Want to Be Your Man to the Rolling Stones in 1964. Mm -hmm. And it's a gift. They literally gift it to them because they like them. Um, and it ends up, uh, it just so happens that they get that, they play it, it sounds good. Um, and it becomes it actually, great. it sounds yeah, <laughs> it's, it's actually version. probably better than the Beatles version. Yeah, in some it's, ways. it's and, and I think and the Beatles themselves said that at one point. Yeah. And that's also, I think we talked about this before, but I think that that is a really good example. Play those two songs, and you get the difference between the Stones and the Beatles. Yes, it's probably the answer to that question. Yeah. What's the difference? It's yeah. like the, how that sounds. Yeah, um, and I would also say the Beatles always did. Um, more of the, the the harmony, saccharine, sweet pop type stuff, much better, and the the blues the blues stuff, the Stones. If you if you want to kind of know the the cover order, you mm -hmm. know, if you're looking for an old blues song, go to the Stones. If you're looking for a girl group song or a '50s song or a or a pop song, go go the Beatles way. But anyway, long story short, Top of the Pops, the long running English show, uh, gets started, and actually the Stones perform "I Want to Be Your Man" on that show. Um, they also infamously are on the show that we talked about in the James Brown episode where they're tasked with following James Brown, even though Mick correctly mentions that they're supposed to be on an hour after James Brown, but he still took it as a personal affront that someone was going on after him. And he, he and Keith Richards both said that did not go well for the Stones to follow them. Um, they also play and get banned from Ed Sullivan, not because of anything they did, but because the crowd was too hysterical and it was just a little bit too much for Ed Sullivan. So he doesn't bring them back. They also have a pretty notorious uh, episode. They're going the Dean Martin show. And I almost put this on the Twitter account and maybe I will uh, later tonight or tomorrow. But basically the entire time Dean Martin is like straight up rat pack ragging on these youngsters who are, you know, have their hair too long. It's, it's like a stereotype of what you would think drunk Dean Martin was like. It was him doing this with the students who are just, who look like infinitely cooler. You know, this is like peak stones, right? So 22 year old stones when they're at kind of their, maybe not their most cool, but they're certainly very cool. And here you've got like, you know, a, a, a Dean Martin who's aging, right? It's, it's one of those moments where you can see exactly where time has changed and the stones sort of just mm. remain placid and kind of let him do his thing. But it's kind of a funny appearance. Um, they then release Satisfaction, which I don't think people realize is an original song from them. It is not a cover. Um, and the album Rolling Stones number two, which follows the Beatles model of mostly covers and some original um, original tracks. And it's kind of at that point they decide that they do better writing their own stuff than they do covering. They, they want to do covers from time to time. And uh, what 
gives them that idea is that they released I Can't Get No Satisfaction and it becomes a hit and then they release Paint It Black, which is on is the only difference between the US version of this, which was released after the UK version, uh, is that Paint It Black is track one instead of Mother's Little Helper. Um, in England, Paint It Black was a single. So the Stones write I Can't Get No Satisfaction, Paint It Black. And when I say they write, well, we're talking about Mick Jagger and Keith Richards who do all of the writing. Um, why that is important is because the the other member of the band who is well known at this point is Brian Jones, who is kind of known as the band leader amongst the music press and amongst other musicians. And that is a real sense of contention, especially for Mick Jagger and for Oldham, the manager. Um, and actually Jones ends up getting a little bit of a cut as the manager of the group at times because he does handle the business affairs. And that is where the split with him and Oldham comes in, that he resented that Oldham kind of came in and did that. And Mick Jagger resents that Brian Jones doesn't write the songs. In fact, he called him a rubbish songwriter. But um, <laughs> and, and Jones was not a good songwriter. He didn't really create songs. But um, very long story short, uh, they then released this album, Aftermath, which is all original material, no covers. And this officially makes the Rolling Stones the Rolling Stones. It takes them from very well known to like super superstars. Um, of course, shortly afterwards, Jones leaves the band and gets replaced by Mick Taylor, not to be confused with Dick Taylor. He'd later be replaced by Ron Wood. Um, and, you know, the rest of the band would run out through the 70s and the 80s. It isn't until um, Bill Wyman leaves in 1993 that there's another major lineup change. So now a little bit about the album. Uh, we talked about the difference between the two, track one. Uh, it was recorded between December 1965 and March 1966. Um, if you enjoyed the the interesting musicianship on some of the tracks, you can thank Brian Jones because he added the dulcimer to Lady Jane, the sitar to Paint It Black, and the marimbas to Under My Thumb. And so even though he was not writing the songs, it is I don't think it's even possible to hear Paint It Black and Under My Thumb without those pieces in it. Um, and so he is responsible for all three of those things. Um, they tour extensively in the U.S. for the first time off of this album. And it's kind of known for being an incredible set of concerts. And pretty much everywhere they go, they're either arrested or borderline arrested for the night and spend a mm -hmm. lot of nights in jail. Um, this album in the mind of the Stones was a theme album. And the idea was that it was a theme album about the combination of demanding tours and intense love affairs. And spoiler alert for those of you who, who might have problems with this. <laughs> if you are someone who likes uh, progressive female values, the lyrical content of this album is not going to be for you because this is the Stones in all of their, pardon my French, but dick swag, you know, swinging, you know, masculine energy uh, i mean when you have a song called under my thumb it's not ex and and you know stupid girl you know that we but the idea and and richards and jagger have pushed back against this as do some feminists the idea is they said that it was a combination of these intense love affairs that were back and forth with some of the women who had their own agency um it just so happened they were writing the songs mixed with being on tour and being surrounded by um people and especially women who wanted something from you, um, whether it be sex, drugs, money, stuff like that. And when you run into too many, it warps your view of women. That is their excuse for why um, this album is so much about power and dominance, stardom, sex. Um, yeah, 
But if you are someone who's who's going to listen to it in a modern context, it's gonna it, you you could not make this album in the modern context. Let's put it that way. With that being said, this album's fucking have a awesome. Hard time. Yeah. <laughs> this album is awesome. I won't even get into the craziness that is. The fact that Brian Jones is dating a model by the name of Anita Pallenberg. They have an abusive relationship. Brian Jones' love life is epic. Like five different kids by five different women. Just all kinds of stuff. Anyway, he starts dating Anita Pallenberg, who all the Stones become enamored with. She kind of plays almost like the Nico role for the Stones that you know she was for the Velvet Underground, right? Anita Does Pallenberg she have a better voice? She doesn't sing, so you don't have to worry about that. But okay. uh, oh, actually, I shouldn't say that. No, she does sing background in certain things, but she's not a part of this album. Um, but long story short, eventually she ends up leaving Brian Jones for Keith Richards after they have a fight in um, in Mexico. And while they never get married, they do have a child together. Uh, so you can imagine that um, that caused some dissension within the band uh, later. There's more with Anita Pound. I'm not going to really go into that, but there's a lot of chaos amongst the Stones right here. There's a lot of talk also about the fact that the Stones were in a constant competition against each other for status and fame. So they were always looking for a, a hipper girlfriend, a new angle, and the Stones were kind of known as like the trans- trendsetters and high livers more so than even like the Beatles were. Um, the Beatles were considered a little bit more square compared to the Stones who were considered to be sort of effortlessly cool, albeit, you know, chaotic. They so, were the bad yeah, boys. They, at least that's what they were marketed as. And then they start living up to it. So I'm going to stop there because it could keep going for forever. Uh, I can give my thoughts later, but Josh, maybe let's start with you. What did you think of Aftermath, both UK and US? I was a little disappointed in this album. I was really hyped uh, to hear listen to a Stones record since we hadn't talked about them yet. And I found that outside of the songs I was already familiar with, um, I didn't find any, you know, deep cuts that, that I really that really gravita- that I really gravitated towards. I found the album um, too long. Um, as always, and I don't know what's with bands in these like 11 minute songs, but on the UK version, going home is, you know, smack dab in the middle. Um, and, um, and I found it a little repetitive too. I don't think their songwriting is, is there yet. Um, they repeat a lot of, uh, verses over and over again, um, sometime to their detriment. And, but I mean, it's got paint it black and well under my thumb mother's little helper and uh i am waiting which i really like and and um stupid girl which is really catchy even though it's like uh you know about a stupid girl but it's about um, mick jagger's girlfriend at the time yeah so it's kind of my thoughts i'm sure i'm sure she liked that yeah (laughs) she hated it very very famously um and she was actually the the sister of the most famous British supermodel of the era. Um, that was who Mick Jagger was dating at the time. And yeah, it's anyway, that's a whole nother story. So, yeah, but okay, I did. So Josh is a yeah, thumbs down. It sounds I didn't, like I didn't like lady Jane. Um, some of the other ones just seemed like, you know, derivative blues, um, riffs, even though they're original songs, I don't, I didn't see like a standout, um, for that. So, yeah. Gotcha. 
Okay. Matt? I yeah, I I liked it. Um I I see some of the things that you're saying, Josh. It is it's it's interestingly long, right? In a sea of albums that we've been covering that are like 30, maybe 35, 40 minutes tops. I mean, this is this is like over 50, you know. So this is borderline probably at that time borderline double album, you know. You're kind of getting into that into and that territory. The Stones either go long or lean. There's no in between with them in terms mm. of their albums. Yeah, but no, I again, I didn't know most most of this. Uh, I knew the 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 singles, "Mother's Little Helper," "Paint It Black." I I I didn't really once I realized that we were doing the UK version. I I didn't really listen to that. But that is like, I yeah. love that song. That's a great <laughs> "Paint It Black" is, and I don't think I really realized how much I liked that until like I I saw the uh, it's at the end of. Um, that Keanu Reeves movie, The Devil's Advocate. Oh yeah, and, that's uh, and the way they and the yeah, and then they play that. I love the movie, and then they played it at the end in the theater. I'm going, oh my god, that's a great song, um, with the sitar and everything. But I I did like it. It's I, you're not. I don't want to say you're wrong, Josh. In that it does, it it kind of blends together. There's not a ton of variety on here. Um, mm -hmm. But and being derivative of the blues, this is what the Stones were, though. I mean, this is them at their roots. And when you've got a song like um, Don't You Bother Me, that guitar that they're playing there, I'm like, that. what do they just like conjure the, you know, a Robert Johnston, you know, from, from that? Because that's basically kind of the, the guitar that you're getting, that really raw slide guitar sound. Um, but I didn't, I didn't dislike it. I don't think that that took anything away from me. I thought it was a really fun record to listen to, and I found myself liking it more as it went on. And that song, man, the standout track for this by far for me that blows my mind, Out of Time. How did I never, I never heard that song before. What a great song. That chorus is fantastic. Um, I loved everything about it. That's oh, yeah. like one of my new favorite Rolling Stone songs. Like that I, is, I do know, like that. I do like that song a lot. Oh, that was, that was, that was great. Um, and it's also interesting. I'm looking at all these titles and they just if i just looking at the record list looking at the title the, the, the names of the songs it just it it's reminds me of so many other songs like stupid girl reminds me of garbage right mm. um uh what is it high and dry it is should Radiohead. because it was based off of it was based off of that track well, and that's what makes me wonder fair like, exile on guyville you know what i mean was but that's based but on, i'm like yeah, i'm like high and dry is radiohead out of time is rem uh take it or leave it is the strokes you know it's like all these songs that like a similar title so um or it, but it's I, not easy a little guns and roses oh oh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're right i don't know I, if that's true I, I know take <laughs> it or leave it this that, that absolutely was influenced the strokes picked that yeah. from this yeah um, I think, you know, there's certain songs I didn't like as much. Like, I think Think was a little bit uh, on the um, uh, uh, the weaker side for me. Uh, Lady Giant Jane, I agree. Uh, it's a slower tempo, but I just it just didn't do as much for me. I like the, the final track, What to Do is Great, too. I always like that. And that Going Home song, man, that's the, I'm sure John's going to bring this in, but that's just about going home and wanting to, wanting to bone your girlfriend. And then you actually are probably in the room while he's doing it because that's what it sounds like. Uh, he's, he's allowing you into that uh, space right there. That is um, the lyrical... Uh, subject of that yes yes i even it's 11 minutes that. long too yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well the yeah. first half he's just talking about it and then i think he actually gets into doing it so uh i i liked it i really um I'm, I'm glad that this was on here there's plenty of stone stuff out there uh that i don't know there's i don't even know what what album is this what what how many albums do they have before this john this is their third studio album third album okay um, so, uh, but they also have a bajillion singles, much like okay. the Beatles and the who and stuff right. that were made into mishmash albums and us only versions. So mm. you can find like seven 
Stones albums, but in terms of studio albums, this is their third. It's all okay. original material. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I my my familiarity with them was mostly like their their. Well, I guess I knew Let It Bleed, but their 70s stuff like Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street and stuff like that. So um, so I'm glad I, I, I like that this is a full Jagger's uh, Richards album um, and that uh, I got to learn a lot about it. But it's it's a it was a fun listen. Um, I, so I you guys back didn't for know sure. this. You guys didn't know this album before we listened to it. No, 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 no not at all. No. That is remarkable to me because it's no. probably the most important Rolling Stones album. Not necessarily the most. That's fascinating to me that this. John, I couldn't have, even have told you like if you you to like put this put like four names of albums and say pick the Rolling Stones album on there and if I didn't I wow. aftermath I never even knew that this was a yeah. name of an album so that's remarkable to me. Yep. Um, I, I think the disappointment for me is attributed to the fact that all of the like the cream has risen to the top on this album. Like you've heard all the most famous songs and, and outside of out of time, which I think I had also heard before. Um, and I really like, and I am waiting's on the Rushmore soundtrack, which I also really like. Um, I, there wasn't any of the other songs that like a lot of the other bands we've listened to were like great songs. I never heard of like the, the Simon and Garfunkel songs from last week or um, something to that effect. And so yeah, I guess I, I just don't. I, I think I was expecting maybe like a little bit later Stones to be here. Like even something like uh, I don't know what's what's the album after this. I think maybe something like that is what I was thinking of. Um, I just I think context is really important here because this is 1966, and yeah. you have to remember that the Stones are considered like a teeny bopper group at this point. So imagine, <laughs> I'm trying to draw a corollary. Imagine like a teeny bopper group suddenly dropping like a Strokes album. And that's the equivalent of what Aftermath is. It's mm. it, it's this heavy uh, blues-influenced album that also, you know, is palatable enough to, to be mainstream, which, I mean, we've listened to Robert Johnson. We've listened to Unfiltered Blues, right? That stuff's not going to cross on the radio. Yeah. Um I think that's what, and that's that's the thing with the Stones. It's either you you like that blues-driven rock, or it just kind of is there for you, right? Because I'd, I'd start by saying the U.S. album is a leaner version of this album. I think it's a superior version because it takes off some of the weaker tracks at the end. Although I like Mother's Little Helper every bit as much as I like Paint It Black, just because Mother's Little Helper as a song is pretty tr- pretty amazing for a song written in 1966. Yeah. Um, yes, that is, uh, that, that's, yeah, it's a standout for sure. And, and in a sea full of casual misogyny, it's also an interesting, very pro-sympathetic um, portrait of like domesticity and, and women's role in particular of it. So it's just funny to have that track and then follow it with like yeah, stupid that's a good girl, point. which is that's like, a good you know, point. bitch, you're so stupid, I hate you. And then after a track, <laughs> it's like these mothers are getting screwed by domestic stuff and then you've got lady jane which is sort of like almost like a sentimental ballad and then you've got like under my thumb which is like you know now you're back under my thumb you know <laughs> don't you bother me so it, it's this at this album is as much about the attitude like keith richards guitar brian jones as a rhythm guitar like as a guitarist is excellent um it's it's like it's not peak stones maybe but to me it's like what the stones are supposed to sound like um I wonder, Josh, if I don't know if you listened to the U.S. version that was leaned down, but the three tracks being off of it and the fact that Going Home is not in the middle of the album, uh, it's gone. 
really does help because then you get to things like out of time and out of time's not, not on the US version. What's that? Out of time uh, isn't on the US I'm version. I'm sorry, you're correct. I, I apologize. I, I am waiting and it's not Which easy. Which is a travesty. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a fantastic yeah. song. I was they, like, well, it's, they took the two longest songs off is what it was to get it under, right? Because out of time's like in the five minute mark um, like, in terms uh, of the UK album. I yeah. would have said take kinda... going home off and put get put out of time on, but that's just. Yeah. Right. I don't, know, yeah, I don't know why they kept going home outside of the fact that everybody had to have their artsy piece, right? Or maybe they it just really spoke to. But that's still a good song. I, st- session, I still so. liked going home. I, I, I didn't mind that. I mean, it's kind of, it is yeah. a little long, but it's, and it's, I wouldn't say they do a ton of different stuff throughout the song. I mean, he's kind of, they're, they're breaking it down a little bit more in the second half, but I still, I still enjoyed it. I wouldn't say that it, it, it got I, it and was too much. T- to me, it's the the Stones. They'll get better, right? They they do. They they get they make even more classics than this. But at the spirit of what the Stones are, it's impossible to not recommend this album when it's got Mother's Little Helper, you know, Paint It Black, and, and the different things as opening tracks right off the bat. Those are those are almost automatic recommends just because of how good they are. Under My Thumb is like a top five Stones for me song for me. Period. It's perfect nearly um and the marimbas make it so unique as a song in its era um i was very familiar with um out of time and it's not easy and i'm waiting uh going home i i think stupid girl is i mean whatever you may say about it in terms of lyrical content and i can understand sort of the counter argument of it too that if you're just angry at your girlfriend you know you write a song that just says you're angry but it's a it's a it's a great song in terms of as a blues rock song um yeah i I really do think this i think this is an important album to listen to because if you listen to this album you will either like it and you will like blues driven rock and in turn what the rolling stones do and many many other bands that will come in the 70s um I, i you know led zeppelin Heart, Aerosmith, you know, they're all derivative of like what the Stones version of rock and roll was, um, as opposed to being Beatles adjacent. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where you're starting right here. You know, do you like that blues driven rock and roll or are you more partial to a different version? I, I don't want to minimize the Beatles by saying they're the alternate version because they do lots of stuff well, including some blues element and stuff. But the Stones are also the, the quintessential rock band attitude you know Mick Jagger as frontman you know it's impossible to hear these songs and I'm at like who else could sing paint it black or under my thumb even out of time with that bluesy riff in terms of at least amongst white lead singers than Mick Jagger I mean he's like the only guy I can think of who can sing that stuff in terms of with the attitude not the note by note singing but the attitude I also liked um, they use a lot of fuzz bass on this. Like they I like sure five, flight, yep. flight 505 has got that bass, you know, that and there's a couple other songs that are doing it. But it's like a more of a distinct sound um, than you than you would hear in other songs. But, yeah, Flight 505 f- was a fun song, too. Um, and, yeah, the marimbas, that's that's like a cool thing as I'm listening to. It, I'm going, man, why don't people use that more? That just seems like a really cool instrument to throw in there. But I don't know. And maybe Brian that would... Jones just sort of heard the track and had been messing around with marimbas and just kind of said, I think these yeah. are fit. And he was yep. right. I mean, it's great. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the maybe that's the secret, right? You don't you don't overdo it, right? It's like kind of like a novelty type type thing. You don't want to use it too much. But um, no, there's uh, there's a lot of good stuff on here. I'm glad I, I'm glad I was exposed to it. I mean, it's uh, well, there's yeah. a lot of use of sitar but there's no better use of sitar 
than paint it black. <laughs> that's like peak yeah, that's really sitar, good. I would say. There's others that did well with it, but that's like peak use of sitar. So, yeah. Well, George Harrison wasn't too much of a slack on that either, but it's... No, that's I, what I'm it, saying. There's others who yeah, used it well. Don't get me wrong. But right. I, I think that's like, but if I was going to use sitar, like that to me is... Painted black is painted black is like this. It's like this dark, menacing. I mean, that's probably why they use it at the end of yeah. that movie, right? Because it's just like yeah. here you here you go, man. Like this, it's and it's like uh, it's got a very cool, like that minor key type sound. That's uh, yeah, a little menacing. So uh, it, it is very cool, and it's There's it's like cool video watching them watching them play that. That freaking thing is a. Mo- I don't know how you would play a sitar. That thing's a monstrosity, um, and it just it makes no sense. But somehow people are able to make this really cool sound with it. So right on. Yeah, I think. So yeah, yeah, Go just, ahead, yeah. Paint it black, you know. As a reminder, it's not on the UK version, which is mostly what we're talking about. And but yeah, paint it black and Mother's Little Helper, I think, are just like head and shoulders above. What I guess that's what I wanted more of, like mm-hmm. stuff like Ugh. that, and I didn't get that in this album. Wow, I, I see. I, I I don't know how you can under my thumb and and out of time and going home like. It's hard because I'm so for once again I'm I'm as familiar with this album as I was unfamiliar with Crosby, Stills and Nash, despite both of them being pinnacle '60s albums for me. And I think what's very interesting in doing these shows with you guys is to know what you guys think of as stuff that you know goes through your conscious and what doesn't. And so it's I it's just interesting to me that Crosby, Stills and Nash would be very much on your conscious, but like Aftermath would be an afterthought, so to speak, because yeah. to me this is one of the most important albums of the 1960s um, easily. So um, because it creates the rolling freaking stones and that's the world. They're the freaking rolling stones, you know? And if you like me believe that the stones have an argument for being the band of the sixties, you know, that can be debated for, for, for forever. And I'd, I'd be open to multiple cases for that, but I mean, you, there is no Rolling Stones without this album. It's so is this what really started? It really started. You said it kind of broke them. Is this is what really started selling? They were very popular, or? but oh no, they always sold. That's okay. one thing about the Stones. They always sold. It just was, um, <clears throat> it was, you know, it was what gave them artistic credibility as opposed to a cover band. It okay. also, it hardened the edge that, it lined up the edge that people who knew the Stones knew of them as people. And how they were living and put it in because this is a this is a very we said a lot last week with the Stooges it was sleazy right you know but this isn't sleazy this is just like this is a hard living album right there's anger in this there's mm. like exhaustion it's a very emotional album um, Matt had mentioned earlier like please please me was a happy energetic album but that yeah. would be like a totally different energy this is like a darker um, angrier yeah. you know volatilely emotional album and that's kind of what the stones would run with certainly during their peak period which i think starts here and depending on your taste can run as far to as tattoo you right in in the late 70s or or you can you know buy into the idea that by the late 70s you know and some girls they were it was gone but you know they were able to tour off that for you know a zillion years to, to this day, theoretically. John, what's what do you think is better, aftermath or bridges to Babylon? <laughs> That's we're, we're not even going to entertain that question. Oh, right there. <laughs> that's also dragging it back into. I, it's also funny to me to think that you're probably more familiar with bridges to Babylon than you are with aftermath, which is a, g- a great reason to do this show because that's just like a crime against nature. The I'm fact familiar that with that the album. It's got a cool album cover. That lion looks pretty badass. 
uh, yeah, just no, just uh, <laughs> I, I, I actually totally don't know okay. that album. <laughs> I'm totally okay with everybody. I love the honest takes too. I love that Josh gives it unfiltered, and, and I can understand for the UK version, it does get a little long, and the placement yeah. of going home is bizarre. Um, it's it's a little bit longer than I would have liked, especially with the blues sound and not always. Uh, derivating from the guitar riffs anymore but like the the tippy top songs on this and even the mid-range songs are like a plus a songs and just a, a album with that many a plus a songs can't be anything for me but a pl- uh, like an easy recommend john do you have any like in, like why is going home that is i agree that's kind of a weird place it's weird i mean it's not as weird as what that stooges song was the third song you know yeah that was that, the that ultimate was, weird that was ultimate weird but this it, it does seem like it would be better placed at the end is there any anything that you know about the about the placement of that at all uh, i mean the only thing i know is that they always made the u.s versions of albums shorter than the uk versions um and that's why i i you said earlier why did they they pluck out of time off of it i know for a fact that's why they did that and some other ones um the remember the the stones had artistic control as we talked about in that so it could just be that they felt strongly about that i don't want to guess on that because i I didn't read that anywhere but i would guess that you know they would have had to co-sign it um I just think it's interesting, like the end of the first side versus the end of the second side, where it would make, you know, the end of the second side seems to make a little bit more sense, but I just didn't know if there was a specific, because that's definitely out of order. Yeah, and and the track listing is jumbled up a little bit on the U.S. version. Not a ton, but a a little bit. So So in in the the other 60s albums we cover are Let It Bleed and Beggar's Banquet. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So it seems like they put out, I'm looking at their discography, it seemed like they put out a lot of albums in the sixties that we're not covering that are come, that come after this, maybe one of those. Well, they had that something. most, that, that famous, your satanic majesties attempt to equal the Beatles, which <laughs> depending, Mick- I think contrarians kind of like to go back and say it's a lost classic. Whereas other people say it was the shits. I think and Mick Jagger said that Beatles that's like shits. his, yeah. yeah, I think Mick Jagger said that was his least favorite, you know, or alluded to that might be his least favorite Stones album. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's a reason it's not in the top 100. Um, it was. It was clearly. I think it was like a case of you know the Stones not necessarily following their muse, following someone else's muse, and that's decidedly unrolling Stones. So, yeah, I I, I wouldn't say I recommend that specific album. Mm, um, I'm trying to think what else is jammed in between those two periods uh, i'm more familiar with the album covers because like i said i think my mom had the albums and so i know like like oh that's what that album is like i remember that picture but the name's not as much yeah, i was a visual learner <laughs> i mean the other thing too with going home is the stones would do like long ass tracks on other albums like you know midnight rambler and can't you hear me knock you know what i mean so it wasn't can't a, always get unlike- what you want can't always get what you want. So it's not unlike them to put one of those songs in. I almost feel like it's a callback to like blues, you mm-hmm. know, just playing out. So once again, I'll, I'll, I'll look into it for cleaning the stacks next week, but yeah. Um, yeah. I do know that uh, they said that they wrote the song in like 20 minutes. So uh, ironically <laughs> enough, so go figure. Wow. So uh, that's about all I got. Cause we'll, we'll do plenty of the stones, but uh, mixed, it sounds like it's a mixed review from our panel. Uh, I, I'm definitely easy thumbs up for me. It sounds like Matt's a pretty comfortable thumbs up. And for Josh, it's thumbs in the middle, maybe trending down a little bit. So yep. um, there we go. And I think that is going to put an end to this week's episode. Anything you guys want to add before I close this off? No, I, can't I don't think it. so. I think that's gotcha. good. 
So next week we have a, another very interesting show. We um, There will come a point where we're going to be revisiting artists quite a bit toward the top of the countdown. But next week we actually have two new artists that are coming in. Josh is going to get to cover Otis Redding um, and the Otis Blue, Otis Redding Sings Soul album. And uh, Matt is going to get back into the psychedelic again with Surrealistic Pillow by Jefferson Airplane, um, our only returning uh, champion is the Kinks, and we're going to be covering one of their later albums from the 60s, Arthur or the Decline and Fall of the British Empire, and uh, I'll be handling that one. So very interesting show next week as well. Um, look forward to doing it. But um, I think for episode 17, let's go ahead and call it a show. For John, Josh, and or for uh, excuse me, for Josh and Matt, this is John. Thanks for listening as always. Um, all of our different platforms are at the end at Combing the on Twitter. YouTube account is now up, Combing the Stacks. Please shoot us feedback if you have it. Take care of yourself and see you next week. It's been our pleasure to have hosted you for another episode of Combing the Stacks. But the time has come for us to turn off the lights and send you home with a fond farewell. Before you leave, remember that new episodes are available every Thursday on a variety of streaming platforms, including Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You can email with questions, comments, or general feedback at combingthestacks at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at combingthe. We'd also like to give a shout out to Defy the Mall, who performs our theme song Coastin, as well as Red Bellows, who are creating the ambiance you're currently experiencing by way of their track, Phonetic. Have a great night.